I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour Extra Bit. This is our little gift to you, podcast subscribers. Natalie and Harriet are away this week, so I drafted in badass support from the radio legend Angie Greaves and also Lucy Beresford. In this episode, we hear from transgender author Juno Dawson on her new book, Meat Market, which is all about the fashion industry. And Samantha Clark, happiness consultant and spokesperson for the Happiness Tattoo Project. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Our first guest is here in the studio. It's Juno Dawson. Good evening, Juno. Hello. Can Thank I you for having me. Love your hair colour. Absolutely. Thank you. Because I, I grew the hair. This is not its entirely natural colour. I've been touched by a hair angel in terms of oh, the I gingerness. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't didn't, doesn't grow this colour. <laughs> but it's a nice deep ginger, isn't it? I just grabbed Julianne Moore. That yes. was the yes. that was yes. the yes. note. The note for the hairdresser. Yeah. So we've got a rag to riches story here with a difference meat market. It's the story of a newly scouted young model, Yana, and her experiences as her career takes mm. off. And it's about the truth behind the fashion industry. And you're yes. very much into fashion anyway, aren't you? Yeah, I didn't want to be preachy. The last thing I wanted to do, like, as a Vogue subscriber was say, you know, <laughs> fashion is bad, you know, I think... It can be fun, but for me, it's always felt like a guilty pleasure because between exploitation of garment workers and sending these very young, very thin models down catwalks, I was always... I felt weird about liking clothes. And I, I suppose when I started the book, I wondered if there was a way that I could enjoy fashion but not feel guilty. Mm. And were you into fashion and passionate about fashion before you transitioned? Is so... the word transitioned or transgendered? What is the word? Well, it's a very personal thing. I see it as it was a process. Okay. So I would refer to it as my transition. Right. And it was, I keep bopping the microphone. I'm That's so sorry. Right. Um, that was what that noise was. Um, and so I, I see it as a, as a process. It was, it was something that I went through a few years back because, you know, I knew from being a very young age that I was a girl and it just, <laughs> I just, I just took my sweet time to get there. I went the scenic route. Um, but I've always liked clothes and I always had a very definite idea of how I would look, you know, had I been born a girl. And so all through my life as a teenager, as a child, I was living one life in mm. the flesh and living another very vivid kind of fantasy world. And then Initially, that fantasy world started with my fiction. And then I realised, you know, it doesn't have to be fiction. You know, I can live the way I was always supposed to be. So I guess the difference is now I just dress how I've always wanted. So were you using your fiction 
before you transitioned, before you'd even thought that about as, a, as an escape, as a way of processing all of that. Yeah, as a way, as, I mean, it sounds so corny, but as a way to live as a girl. And mm. when I started writing in 2008, it didn't even enter my head to write from a boy's point of view because, you know, that was my way to sort of express what I was thinking, I guess. And, you know, for the first four years of my career, I constantly had this this comment, oh, you write such good female characters. Right? How do you write such compelling and convincing girls? And I was kind of like, well there is a really obvious explanation for this. And then eventually I just kind of got on with it in 2013. So can you tell us a bit more about the story in Meat Market then and how yeah. the book came about? So it's based on a lot of research. Um, I met with lots and lots of models and scouts and photographers and all sorts of people. Um, it's based on the testimonies of various girls and some guys as well. Um, it's about a girl called Jana Novak. Her family are Serbian refugees. They live on the same estate that I lived on when I lived in Clapham Junction. And one day she's at Thought Park celebrating the end of her GCSEs and she gets scouted by a modelling agency. And you think it's going to be this great rags to riches Cinderella story. But just as her career is about to go through the roof, she's sexually assaulted by one of the most powerful men in the industry. And she has this very difficult choice of whether or not to speak out against someone who really holds her career in the palm of his hands. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so so is this a kind of, you know, if you did a lot of research, is there is this sort of like semi-fiction, but actually semi-almost, like actually, you, you, you know, you've got some insights, you uncovered some things that are going yeah. on in the fashion industry that you perhaps wouldn't. And it was heartbreaking because a lot of the girls were talking about these people who are, for want of a better word, they're abusing them. And they were talking about it with this kind of quite gallows humour, like, oh, and you want to avoid him and you wouldn't be alone in a taxi with him and she pulls your hair out and, and all these kind of things. And I was like, do you realise that's not cool? You know, mm. it's not OK for people to treat you like this. But the first draft did read a bit like an expose mm. and I wasn't ever going for a non-fiction text. So then what I had to really do is go back and think more about Yana who is she? What's her personality? Who are her friends? Because I did, first and foremost, it's her story and it's one girl's kind of, I guess, attempt to find her voice and to speak out against somebody so powerful. Yeah, and have you had any backlash from the fashion industry then in terms of the book? Or are they just a bit, like, not oh, quite they can't aware? They read. No. <laughs> no, I don't know, not yet. There's no pictures in this one. <laughs> not yet, no. I mean, I don't know, because I also like to think I've been fair and, and there are, I think, lots of green shoots coming through. So the big one that's just happened recently is a huge big fashion brand called Kenning, who they represent, like, Gucci and Balenciaga. Mm. They've said they will no longer work with models who are under 18. Mm. So there are signs that the industry is mm. listening. There are signs that the industry is improving. I think under Edward Enninful, Vogue has become much more diverse and inclusive. So there are positives in there. And and I think, at the without giving any spoilers, at the end of the book, Yana and some of her other model friends start to realise there is a way that they can do a job without being abused, yeah. you know, and, and no job should involve abuse. Absolutely. And you seem yourself to be quite passionate about the fact that, you know, we need to stand up, speak our truth, be our truth, and just use your creativity. I do, but I mean, I feel hypocritical because there are men working within publishing that I wouldn't want to be in a taxi with. Mm. And I've not named them because mm. I didn't think it was my place. You know, I haven't been sort of picked on by them. Um, it hasn't necessarily always been me. Um, so at the same, 
you know, Yana's story was was kind of my way of dealing with a lot of my sort of cognitive dissonance, I guess, you know, about three years, and I've said this elsewhere, about three years ago, I was in a position not dissimilar to Yana's, and but it wasn't a hotel room like it is in the book, it was at my flat. And I came away from it thinking, do I call the police? I'm not really sure what just happened. Was Did I give him the wrong idea or something? And so quite deliberately, I put Yana in an ambiguous situation as well, because I think there are lots of women out there who've come away from dates or encounters with people they work with and just thought, Ooh, oh, I feel weird mm. about that. Wasn't right. Well, that's why the book's so powerful because it, even though it's set in the fashion industry, the things that happen are applicable to lots of other situations, social ones, other workplaces. And I think there is a big shift now where people just won't put up with it any longer. And as you say, some of the people who are still in it, you want to say to them, Do you realize that's not okay? But actually, with books like this, more and more people are going to realize it's not okay. I hope so. And I think. Meat Market's just one more voice. And I think Me Too represented a cultural shift. I, I don't think our culture is the same now. I, weirdly, I started Meat Market in 2016, so it was before the Weinstein scandal broke. And I was, I was really struggling with it because I'd created this really likeable character in Yana and I felt like she was almost a sacrificial lamb because I knew what was going to happen in that hotel room. And I felt very uneasy and I, I wasn't getting on with it. And then the Weinstein scandal broke. And I was like, you've got to finish this book. Mm. Just sit down and do it. Because, you know, so many women are being so brave. And if those women hadn't spoken out, you know, we wouldn't have made this progress. So, yeah. you know, you have to. Yeah, because that's the, that's the shocking thing, isn't it? You know, you, you're, talking, you're using the fashion industry as an example on how people have said, have said you know, don't work with that person because they'll do that. Every single industry has its people, and as, as women, we know we know who these people are in our industry, like because we are having those same conversations. Mm -hmm. But I still think it happens. In fact, I've got a friend who had an interview the other day for a very senior role at a very big company, and the guy who interviewed her asked her to smile in the interview and told her that he gave her the job because she had a nice smile. And she is a forty-year-old woman. So it's still happening. So was there it for a, a tooth model? Was it? Was she? <laughs> no, was it an interview like, to be a tooth? That's is, possibly the only way yeah, that would be acceptable. Exa exactly, exactly. But it's mm. still happening. So I, I feel like there is a culture shift. But every industry, those people are still there. There's still something going on. Juno, can you stay with us a little longer? We I still can. want to talk to you a bit more. If you've got any questions for Juno, then do give us a call. Oh three double four four double nine one thousand, or you can tweet at Talk Radio. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. I'm Angie Greaves. It's Badass Women's Hour XL. I've got Emma Sexton in the studio with me. I have Lucy Beresford and our guest, Juno Dawson, is with us as well. And Juno, I'm loving just your whole outlook on the whole LGBT culture. Would that be the right word? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, wherever you are in the world... There is going to be a slightly different culture. I mean, we have to be aware that we have freedoms as LGBTQ people in this country, that people in the developing world, and sometimes, to be honest, in the developed world, can only dream of. Yeah. So you've got to be very careful about what you say. But yes, I am. Yeah, I've been. I've been a very vocal kind of 
voice. <laughs> I don't know the song, Frazzle. A really vocal, I guess, member of the trans community. So, yeah, I suppose it's fair to say. And even though we're talking about your book or you're here today because of your book, Meat Market, there is another book that I want to have a talk with you about. It's called This Book Is Gay. Yeah. That you wrote in 2014. Mm -hmm. And in Wasilla, Alaska, there was... You're laughing. Yeah. There was um, a petition that was... Uh, brought up in a library yeah. because no there was a petition that came up because the the community didn't want that book in that library or in libraries full stop it's been challenged in various bits of north america which is by far and away it's it's my best-selling book globally it's this book is going so it's doing something right it came about it was it was a funny one because it started with a parent just querying why it was in the children's section. And I've, I've never written a children's book. It was supposed to be in the teen section. Mm -hmm. And as these things do sometimes snowball, a much more right-wing conservative group of parents got wind of this rumour that there was this sort of gay text in, in the children's section and and then there were protests. But I'm pleased to say that the, the Walsilla Town Library never removed it. They never bowed to pressure. They didn't move it. They moved it to um, the teen section. Which is where you were Which saying it was it meant to be. Which is where it should have been anyway. Well, yeah, so it was a bit... But then the thing is sometimes the media picks up on these things. I mean, the only... In, I mean, initially we were quite excited because, you know, often when books get challenged in North America, your sales go through the roof because it's just free publicity. But then after I'd mulled on it for a minute, it just made me sad because I was like, what kind of message is that sending out yeah. to LGBT youth in Wilsilla, Alaska? You know, that there's something, something controversial about their life. And to be honest, it's really not very interesting, to be honest. And... And so after initially being quite excited by the whole furore, I was just a bit sad about the whole mm. thing. Mm. Yeah, because that's noisier than, than your book is noisier, isn't it? Like PR is great, but you're right for everybody sort of knocking that as a child growing up. And, and you know, I'm sure you were the same when you were younger. You know, you're looking for things to identify with and to learn from and to... Yeah. You're picking up on clues all around you. You know, I'm very, very lucky that I still get to tour secondary schools and libraries and events. I've just come from film and Comic-Con. And um, LGBTQ youth, they are so switched on and they're looking out for clues. They're looking mm. for those signals that this is a safe space. And what those kids in Alaska were hearing loud and clear was that your hometown is not a safe space. Mm. Did, did you feel that you had safe spaces when you were growing up? What was your journey like from the moment <laughs> when you realised that actually you wanted to to start the transition and... Yeah, so it was, it was a funny one because I, I guess, sort of did it in two stages. So I grew up in the 90s, sort of 80s, 90s in near Bradford. And it was a completely different time. I mean, it, it's bizarre now to think of a time pre-internet and pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook. But I just didn't have any role models. And although I knew from a really souping age, maybe five or six, that, you know, I wanted to be a girl, um, I didn't know what transitioning was. Mm. I didn't know that was an option. And... You know, in the 90s, I, I des was desperately looking for clues as to who I was. And so initially when I was about 15, I told my friends and family that I thought I was gay. And for about 10 years, we all thought, I guess we thought that that was going to be the end of it. But then when I moved to London and started working more in the media and met other trans women who were about my age, and in fact, it was when I was writing this book, Is Gay, I started to think, well, I think I've got more in common with her than I do with him. And, and 
you know, I had to come out all over again yeah. twice. So do you think it was finding that community that made the difference? Because some of the people that I've worked with clinically mm -hmm. say that that is the turning point for them. It's when, and again, usually it's when they come to London because they they haven't grown up or been raised in London yeah. and therefore they haven't had those safe spaces that you were asking about. But then they find that, they find people who understand them and, and their world takes off. I think now... So I think if I had been born even 10 years later, or 15, 20 years later, I think I would have seen, you know, people like me. You know, kind yeah. of I would have seen Andrea Pejic or Paris Lees or Munro Bergdorf. And, you know, and they're such aspirational people. I think I would have probably started my transition as a teenager with the information that we have now. Um, but the strangest thing is, you know, I had seen trans people, but I think there was on online, but I think there was something very pertinent about meeting them in real life. Mm. And I think for me, and I've said this in lots of places, and she knows that I'm obsessed with it, is a, an amazing woman called Isla Holden, who was an RAF um, helicopter pilot who flew alongside Prince William. And so, of course, she ended up in the media because a newspaper, we might be in the building that runs that newspaper, <laughs> um, a newspaper put her on the front. Um, saying, you know, shock horror, Prince William has a trans co-pilot. And of course that wasn't news and it shouldn't no. have ever been on the front page of a newspaper. But through, you know, through networking events, I got to meet Isla and I just saw this amazing woman who was just an amazing pilot, you know, and just thought she was living her best possible life. And I, it sounds insane, but I was a bit jealous. I was like, well, you know, here is a woman living her life. And I kind of feel like my life hasn't started. Mm. And I was, what, 28? So. Do you? Because there's been a lot of criticism, hasn't there, about these clinics now that are, are diagnosing children or allowing children to start transition or consider that uh, in an earlier age. Do you feel that if you'd have had that, you could have started your transition at an earlier age? And would you have wanted to? Oh, 100%. Right. I mean, I do sometimes feel like, you know, I missed out a bit and I, I you know now because now with all the information and support that we do give to trans youth you know I meet sort of 17 18 19 year old trans girls who basically their whole life has right. just been who they are because yeah. their parents have just allowed them to yeah, live there's the way they always going to be that sense that I wasted 28 years you right. you come across very very sure from a very very young mm. age that you were born in the wrong body would that be a fair way of putting it I'm wary of that because I sort of feel like, you know, it was the body I got. Okay. <laughs> you know, it was the one I got and it was healthy. Um, you know, in, in many ways, I'm very, very blessed. Um, it was just that everything I knew about myself didn't match that body. So okay. if anything, it was a mismatch okay. body. Mm. I don't know if I'd say it was wrong or broken. It was it was fine. Um but I think, yeah, I, I sort of knew and was. I think it's that persistence as well. And just th there, there is a difference between a zany kid saying, look, mum, I'm a parrot, yeah. and a child <laughs> who has consistently said for many, many years, please listen to what I'm telling mm. you. It was like a niggling that just would not go away. Did you ever try to push it down? Well, I was shamed out of it. I was told I was wrong in my head. I was told I was a freak. <laughs> So you soon learn to shut up because you just you're getting. Yeah. So what mocked. would you what would your advice be then to parents who are beginning to hear those messages, as you say, those little niggles from mm. their their children, and they're resistant to it, or they don't even know what they're being told? Because kind of we need to be educated how to listen to those yeah. conversations. 
I think, I mean, that's, I think that's just great advice across the board, which is listen to what your kids are saying. Um, I, I think as well, the great thing about... And take young, it seriously. Yeah, I think the great thing about younger kids is that they, they're not really performing to anything. So if, if they're telling you things, I would mm. imagine they're being honest yeah. about them. Yeah. Um, there was a, and then this is so terrible, but I would say, girl, it, it's a Canadian study. I can't remember who did it. It was one of the big Canadian universities that said, the more we listen to trans youth the better the outcome in terms of teenage mental health, anxiety, yeah. depression, self-harm and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that what I would stress on to listeners is to take those big scary headlines with a big pinch of salt. The support that we give to trans youth takes years. You know, we should be so lucky that you would get seen by a doctor within two or three years. Mm. The wait lists for the clinics now in the north of England, in Manchester and Leeds, three-year wait lists. So this isn't crazy overnight changes or whimsical behaviour, you know, and it's such a process, you know. My, my transition, I guess, started, what, 36 years ago now, and here we are now, yeah. mm -hmm. but it took me 36 years to get to this point. Yeah. Do you feel that a trans person under the age of, say, 10 has the emotional capacity to make the decision to make the transition? Well, and another one of those big myths is that we are wheeling children mm. into surgical mm -hmm. theatres, which we're not. So in this country, we don't do any sorts of surgeries on people who are under 18. Um, sometimes, so after, once you've... Once a young person has had all years of the talking therapies and wait lists, often support from CAMS, the Children and, children and Adolescent Mental Health Service. So once you've been through all of that rigmarole, um, I think both the child and their family are, are in a position to move forward because you've received all kinds of support. But I do think, who knows you better than you? Yeah. No mm. one. And I knew myself... I mean, I've never been anybody else but me, yeah. so I'm not going to speak that's for anyone we, else, but I knew. That's only what we need to do, is we need to, tr we need to trust our children more and we need to give them the capacity to trust themselves more. But the more, when you're growing up, you do tend to look to your parents and caregivers and teachers and say, how am I? Can you define me? What labels would you put on me? Um, and, and that's where it goes wrong, because the adults are thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm either thinking about how I grew up or what society expects, and that's why a lot of stuff gets suppressed. But if we can trust our children, then you're doing me out of a job, which would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's no one way to be trans as well. I mean, not all trans youth present in the same way. It's not always going to be like me as a five-year-old saying, mum, when do I become a girl, which was the way my sort of childhood went kind of but so it's again yeah just about listening to them and again supporting your kids which I know all, obviously all your listeners do you that's th what we want do you think it would be a positive thing if we made all schools kind of gender neutral I mean I know there's some schools starting to do it now where like the toilet facilities are um you know um, for everybody mm. and not segregated and school uniforms so do you think that all kids should be brought up kind of gender neutral until they can they decide for themselves where they naturally want to fit. Oh no, that sounds like hard work. <laughs> I mean, this is I mean, this is we're talking about 0.5 percent okay. of the population. Such a minuscule thing, and I worry a bit the whole this because I do. I probably about once a week I get asked to speak 
on a news programme about some school in some tiny town has done gender-neutral uniforms. Oh my gosh, let's panic. But what concerns me and what annoys me is that very often gender-neutral defaults to just boys' clothes. It's like, hang on, but that's not gender-neutral. That's just a boys' school uniform. That's just trousers. So I think, I mean, I think... In the words of Taylor Swift, the wise, <laughs> the wise woman, Taylor Swift, we need to calm down. Yeah. And I just think, you know, the best schools that I go into, it's just they're like, right, these are our school uniform items. Where go nuts. Okay. As long as you're wearing this uniform, you okay. can mix and match whoever you like. But then I think as well, it's, again, it's about... You know, for example, I can't imagine there's many schools without disabled toilets. Yeah. There's disabled toilets are usually unisex. I go to a gym in Hove. There is just one changing room and you go into a little cubicle and it's great. Um, so I think, yeah, it's so, so much panic in the media for something so banal, just people just going about their business and, you know, not particularly causing just any get fuss. On with it. Yeah. Yeah. Juno. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having and me. And it's been very enlightening as well. And I love the fact that you are very, very passionate about who you are. Thank you. And you keep up the good work. Meat Market. It is by Juno Dawson. It's in all good bookshops now. Juno, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour Excel on Talk Radio. Now, we're talking about the Happiness Project now. It's with Momondo, who created a single line tattoo, which you've seen, Emma, haven't you? You, you came across this, was it on Instagram? Yes, yeah. And we have Samantha Clark in the studio now, who is a happiness consultant. I feel good about that already. <laughs> Love good, it. Good. But Emma, you, you, this tattoo caught your eye. So yeah. give me your take on this. It really caught my eye. And I, I kind of know Sam anyway through her happiness um, work. But it was a, a really unique project and especially a unique project for a brand. But I wanted um, just to talk to Sam first. Sam, you are a happiness consultant. I am. Can you tell us 
and the listeners who might not have heard of that term before, what a happiness consultant is. So my aim is to make people uh, find happiness at work, figure out what it is that brings them joy and how they can show up in the world and deliver their greatness. And I also work with companies, getting them to think about company culture, coaching leaders and really building kind of healthier relationships to work and, and what it means to us when we show up at work. And is this, is this kind of a new... Um I was going to say phenomenon, but I can never say it. <laughs> um, but is this kind of a, a new thing that's emerging a- around our kind of awareness of like health, well-being, thriving at work? Is this mm. like a new role that's kind of emerging? Yeah, I think I've been really pushing ahead with getting companies to think beyond, you know, your people are your biggest assets. And I don't think there's enough attention paid to the, uh, there's been a lot around the physical health, but the mental well-being at work. Mm. And also how do we communicate better? How is technology impacting our happiness and also what does work mean now what is our sense of purpose and and is it so connected to identities how can we find and craft work that feels meaningful on both sides for the company and the employee so tell us about this uh, project so um with this tattoo artist for momondo like who are momondo who is the tattoo artist how did the project come about tell us yeah everything. so i was contacted um by a production company and they said we've got this amazing project put on by a brand which involves uh, millions of people applying to have a tattoo on their back and at first i thought what are you talking about <laughs> and um and they said look it's a travel company and they'd love to meet you and they just think that the work you're doing around connection and just um, emotional intelligence in general you'd be great to facilitate the project so they are a Danish travel company and uh, they are really interested in looking at how travel connects humans how we can move across borders to understand each other better and this project involved um Uh, 61 individuals getting a tattoo across their back which is very representative of their personal journey and it was designed by Mo Ganji who's a really famous tattoo artist in Berlin and they um, I was basically brought in to facilitate the conversation with them throughout the whole day of we had two days of filming and it was such a I guess, deep and emotional journey for me. Not only did I have to watch, you know, hours of their Skype interviews, their personal interviews, you know, there's some really heart-wrenching stories around why they wanted to do this project, uh, what drew them to their own thinking around how they can make the world a better place. And uh, and then on the day, they were basically standing around in a circle, not wearing much. Um, I actually <laughs> asked if that's why they were happy. <laughs> But it was just, you know, for the first time, these people, these are all strangers they'd never met before. So they all had their tattoos done individually, yes. did they? All they right. basically, it was all very, um, you know, constructed in the set way. So everyone had, you know, the set patterns and the lines and they all have their set number, but they had never met any of the people before. Did they, did they know what their tattoo was going to be of as well? Or did, or did that, was the tattoo inspired by their stories and their... So Mo created a selection of tattoos and then they were given a choice of um, how much the tattoo resonated with the personal story they wanted to share. So then they were allowed to choose and then, um, you know, commit to having this thing on their back, which, you know, and some of the, and the tattoos vary from, you know, reaching hands, connecting, um, there's lots of nature. Uh, and the stories themselves were just so intricate and it was just really interesting seeing how people as far flung from Nigeria, Australia, South America... Um, uh, you know, Canada, Lithuania, everywhere, just really connecting and coming together for, you know, 
uh, this vision of what it means to connect people. We've got a caller on the line who wants to actually um, make a comment about this. Susan, good evening. Good evening, lovely lady. Good evening. It's just so lovely to hear you. Um, um, I just would like to say something. I think that in my older years, I've become um, I've become more aware that it's important to be kind. And actually, if you do, if you are kind to people, it comes back to you. It's like a ball, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know that that saying, a rubber ball, it comes bouncing back to you. And um, the other night I was eating a packet of crisps and I gave some crisps to a gentleman who was sitting next to me and he told me all about his life. And um, I just, sometimes I buy flowers and chocolates for people and I don't really have the money, but it just makes you feel so good because you can cheer someone up, you know. And, and it makes you happy when you cheer somebody up. It's just a feel-good factor. Yeah, Susan, so, you know, you're so right. You, you yourself get that benefit of uh, that that glow of doing something really lovely for someone else. I know. And that's why I've set up something called um, Refuge for Books, which is where I ask people to donate books to me and then I work with Refuge, the domestic violence charity, to create libraries in the shelters that they run. And people Uh are usually doing it with books that they've finished, often that they've loved. And you're right, it, it, it... it also, you were finding out about someone else's life. That would never yeah. have happened if you hadn't, with that kind gesture, offered the crisps. I know. I, know. I, I just think it's really important to be kind. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel better about yourself. Sometimes you could live in the dark and you, you think, well, I don't, I don't love anybody. I don't like anybody. Why should I? They've been horrible to me. But if you open up a little bit, you know, it, it, does, it, it, is, it does have a knock-on effect. And I think it is important to be kind, you know. I mean, the other week I bought some flowers and chocolates for a lady. I'm not, not, you know, I've got some massive bills coming through the door. But it made me feel good because the lady, uh, this friend of mine, she's having a hard time with her children at the moment. And And she said, you know, nobody's bought me flowers for years. And it was just so lovely to give her that. Just a little bunch of flowers from Tesco. You know, it was just so oh, lovely. Actually, there is so a, nice. I think there's an initiative in London um, yeah. where, whereby people just buy flowers and they give them to random people. Nice. What an amazing thing. Yeah. So Susan's act of kindness created happiness. So as a happiness consultant, Samantha, would you say that kindness and happiness go hand in hand? Yeah, I totally agree with your sentiment about um, we should always look to think, you know, how can I serve somebody else and what is it that I can do to make and add value into the world? And I think that goes hand in hand. Like when you support another person, you feel good Mm. and it just, you know, gives you that endorphin. We also have to remember that it's important to be kind to ourselves as well. And I think a lot of us forget that. Mm. We either haven't got time or we're too busy giving to others. Whether it's to our parents, to our kids, to our colleagues that actually we get to the end of the queue. Of course. And we're um, drained. Yeah. And especially like mothers as well. I always think there's yeah. that. I always say you can't serve from an empty well. And yeah. I think you have to know how to replenish well, it's yourself. Like what they say on the airline, isn't it? You know, you, you have to put your oxygen mask on yourself first, first because otherwise you can't help anybody Absolutely. else. Exactly. Yeah. So um, this tattoo now, these 61 people. Yes. They're they're together in a, a circle and yep. the, obviously they're all facing inward. And is it a continuous line? Is it yep. so? It, so do, do they all have to stand in the same position? So or? yeah. So basically, for the two days of filming, they were standing on a podium in their specific number, 
and uh, all connected via their tattoo and each were asked to kind of share their story and why they wanted to be part of this project and what the project means to them. So there was lots of different stories from, um, you know, health uh, to, you know, being in war and, uh, you know, the connections between the Israeli and um, Palestinian divide, um, racial, ten uh, cultural differences and what they wanted to do to shape that. And it was just so... Um, I guess heartwarming for me to see that people were really willing to kind of make changes and they were doing it on even a small uh, basis on their community but were hoping that this project would you know really touch people and about 80 million people have watched the video already. Amazing. So, that's amazing. And who's where can we see this um, on Instagram? So if you go to at Mamondo um, they have it on their website it's also on my website samantharand.co uh, and you'll basically be able to watch the film which is five minutes long and on the Momondo website I think www.momondo.com forward slash world peace you'll be able to learn about the journey of us creating it and a little bit more you'll be able to see each of the 61 tattoos as well amazing Samantha Clark happiness consultant thank you for coming into talk radio thank UK. you One, two, three, four. this has been the badass women's hour podcast with me Harriet Minter Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton if you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.